So this morning at about 8.55, class starts at 9, about 8.55, we have a gentleman by the name of Rick Machinsky, who is our church mascot, he's our barista, he's the manager, he just kind of gets everything together for us. He gets here at like 5 a.m., by the way, so he probably was here before the snow. But anyway, at 8.55, it was just me and, uh, and, and Rick, and we're standing by the front door, looking out on an empty parking lot, like hoping somebody would show up. We weren't sure. I don't know. I thought I might just be preaching to just Rick this morning, but turns out you guys showed up too. So, so glad that you're here. Glad you could make it. Uh, It's beautiful outside, but it's a beautiful time to be inside. So, uh, we are in part four of our series, and it's called Unhappy Holidays. And there have been some people who kind of were a little troubled by the title. They're like, wait a second. You know, I mean, the holidays can be hard enough without, you know, a sermon series that promotes the idea of unhappy holidays. You know, come on, really. But we've been talking about what can make the holiday season miserable and the choices that we can make that can just make this a rough time of year for us when we just get caught up in the stuff that we don't need to get caught up in. So we've been going through different scenarios and and really the premise has been what if we celebrated the holidays with the values of Jesus? What if we took what Jesus would say, what Jesus would do, what Jesus would buy, what Jesus would spend, and we said, what if we celebrated the holidays that way? And obviously, this is much broader than that, right? There's, there's, there's application. It's not just the holidays, so don't feel like you get to January 1st and all of a sudden nothing about this sermon series applies. It's much broader, but, um, but we thought that it would be helpful to figure out this, this idea, like, like how would Jesus celebrate the holidays? And I don't know if you've ever felt, felt like the holidays can get a little out of hand for you. Uh, if you think hard enough, you probably can figure out a time or two where it got a little difficult. But, um, but around, uh, around the holidays, there's a lot of choices to make. A lot of choices to make. Some families have to split the... Uh, you can go back one slide. I don't want anybody to see that yet. Michael, you're just, just too fast. You know what? Last week, just a little commercial break. Last week, I made a little fun of Michael during the sermon about him moving too fast. And a bunch of people went up to him and was like, you're doing a great job. <clears throat> no, he's not. He went too fast. Just, just kidding. Don't... Don't give him false praise. No, just kidding. You could, he's doing a good job. We'll, we'll get there in a second. We'll get, um, but anyway, around the holidays, there's a lot of choices to make. So some of you uh, know the feeling of having a split, the split time between diff- two different families. You know, you got to do Christmas morning here, Christmas evening there, Christmas Eve here, or the day after Christmas here, and you got to do all kinds of driving around. you got to decide, and sometimes you're just like, no, nah, I just want to be in one spot for Christmas. If people want to come celebrate with us, it's fine. And then, but if you do that, you're going to offend this in-law or this grandparent or this great-aunt or whatever. And there's these, these choices that you have to make. Uh, maybe you and your family decided to just get your immediate family gifts and, and maybe give a little bit of money to charity this year, but then that one in-law went and bought all your kids and all you gifts, and now you're like, mm, if I don't get them gifts, am I being like that bad in-law? Are they going to talk about me at the next holiday and be like, well, they didn't get us anything, and so you have to decide, well, should I give money to charity? Should I go buy some you know, gifts from the dollar store for this family or whatever? What do I do? Like, like how, how do I do this? Or maybe, maybe you love Christmas morning. You're just looking forward to Christmas morning, the whole family in their matching pajamas, and, and you're sitting around the fire, and there's the tree, and, you know, uh, they're playing Christmas music, and everything's perfect. It's Christmas morning, but this year, guess what? Christmas morning lands on a Sunday, and Patrick and Dor- Jordan decided, hey, you know what we should do on a religious holiday? We should go to church. So we decided to have church on a religious holiday. So guess what? Christmas morning, we get to spend with our church family, and some of you are thinking like, oh, I don't know, I don't I don't know, I, I like being in my pajamas around the fire. Well, guess what? We will crank up the heat and you can come to church in your pajamas that day. How about that? How about that? We'll make that decision a little bit easier for you. 
But the, but the question really is, in a lot of cases, like we've got these dilemmas, but the question really is, in some cases, uh, we struggle between good decisions and bad decisions, but how, how about when we struggle between good decisions and good decisions? Like some of our moral dilemmas are between good and bad, but I would say often our moral dilemmas are between good and better. That's a lot of our struggle is like, how do we decide between good and better? And this may not feel like a moral dilemma to you because you're like, well, I'll just do the good thing or I'll do the better thing. But I want you to know the Bible speaks to this issue uh, quite a bit. The idea of how do you choose or when you're confronted with a struggle between good and better, what do you do? Like, and, and how do we even get these confused? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's familiar, and it may be one of those passages you're tempted to just kind of tune out, but I want you to, to read it with uh, some fresh eyes this morning. And we're going to explore the idea of how do we choose between good and better. How do we choose between good and better? So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 38. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, it's going to be on the screen as well. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. Now, if you've been going to church for a while, you're like, oh, Martha, I know about Martha. Martha, she's bad news. She's just distracted and busy. I know about Martha. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, this is Jesus, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And of course, Jesus responded, Martha, Martha, which sounds so patronizing, but I'm sure it wasn't. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Good verses better. Good versus better. Um, parents, have you ever had the experience where you're sitting inside or you're sitting downstairs, you're watching TV or you're just reading a book or whatever and all is calm, all is bright and then from another room or from outside comes a blood curdling scream and you recognize the sound of the scream. It's one of your children. And they're screaming. They're downstairs in the basement or they're upstairs in their room. And you are like, what, what is... And that instinct, like that adrenaline, that inside part of you. And this can happen whether or not you're a parent, by the way. You just... Something like some primal part of you kind of kicks in. And you leap into action. And you burst into the room where they are. You run outside where that child is. Like, what is happening? There must be like a bear attacking them. There must be like some, something terrible has to be happening because that sound can only indicate something that is truly, truly, truly awful. And you see your child there and they have like a, a popsicle and the top part of the popsicle fell and broke and is on the ground. And they have used that blood-curdling scream that, that draws from you that, that part of your, your parenting ability that you didn't even know existed. You move faster than you thought you could move. You have adrenaline coming out your ears and your eyes because of that sound. And you go outside and it's a popsicle that has fallen on the ground. And if you're a parent like me, you kind of pick up the popsicle, dust some of the dirt off, like, you know, give it to the kid. But the kid, is, you know, the kid is done. And then you sit down and you have a discussion with this child. And you say, child, that noise that you just made, 
that noise must be reserved for special occasions. A popsicle does not qualify that noise. You cannot use that sound because that sound will bring out of me something so important. You cannot use that sound. It must be, next time you make that sound, there must be copious amounts of blood. Not even just small amounts. Much blood must be being spilled for you to use that sound. It must be a bear that has come out of the woods in your suburban neighborhood and is threatening you and your sister. An alien invasion, but not a popsicle. Not that minor thing. You are wasting something important on something that is not so important. That, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience as a parent or if you remember as a kid doing that, but there are just certain moments that require certain responses. Certain moments that require certain responses. And, and, and maybe you're, you're telling your kid, look, look, I'm very sorry for your loss of the popsicle. I want you to know other popsicles exist in the world. And by the way, kids have no concept of that. By the way, that's the only popsicle. That's the most important popsicle. That's the tastiest popsicle. They lost it and they think that they're done. And you're like, I'm sorry for your loss, but don't you ever make that sound again. Unless, right, you put those qualifications on it. That is a sound that is only made in certain, you don't have to make that noise. Now in verse uh, 30, uh, excuse me, in verse 40, Martha, and you're like, how do you tie this back to Martha? In verse 40, Martha, how did she get confused between good and bad? How did she get confused between, or excuse me, good and better? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, in the first century, the value of hospitality can't be overstated. Like, we don't have the same way to communicate insult or respect today. Like, if you don't get invited over to somebody's house, it just doesn't mean that much, right? You know, unless they invited everybody else in the circle but you. Maybe that would be a little insulting. But it's just not that big of a deal. In the first century, if there was a stranger and you didn't extend an invitation, that was an insult to that person, like a direct insult. It was like calling their mama names to not invite them to your home. And if that person didn't accept the invite, it was like they were insulting you. Like hospitality was the preeminent value in the first century. So when Jesus comes along to this city and Martha says, hey, you can come to our house and Jesus accepts. That's the way society is supposed to go. And the host is supposed to do a good job of showing this guest hospitality. It's supposed to be perfect. Everything's supposed to be perfect. So here is Martha. Here is an important rabbi, an important teacher in Jesus. And she wants everything to be just so. There's all these preparations that had to be made. We often struggle with understanding what is really a have-to. We struggle with understanding what really is a have-to. Because lots of good things like to disguise themselves as best things, and they're not. And this is going to get a little serious here just for a second. And this might be a little uncomfortable for you. It's going to be a little uncomfortable for me. Because you're going to be like, wait, is he talking about me specifically? Maybe I am. We'll find out. Martha thought, I have to be a good host. Therefore, God wants me to be a good host And then there's always this pivot. And then she says, in order to be a good host, I have to prepare a 12-course meal or whatever. Or I have to make sure that the house is spotless. I have to confront my sister for not doing her part. And now it looks like I'm going to have to tell Jesus that he needs to get Mary back in the kitchen. I have to do these things. These were all have-tos because of what she valued or what she thought. 
I have to take care of my family as a dad, as a parent. I have to, right? God wants me to take care of my family. If I take more hours at work, I can take better care of my family. Therefore, I have to miss another family dinner. I have to miss that other recital again. Or I have to leave early. Or I have to be late for the birthday party. Now, having to be a good dad, that's a good thing. But then when we apply that have to, that had to, into these other situations, we start elevating things to this level of importance that does not belong there. We start, like the children, making this noise that should only apply in important situations when we say we have to do certain things. I have to be a great parent, right? I have to. I have to. Therefore, I have to push my kids towards success. I have to. That's what a good parent does. Therefore, I have to sign them up for everything. Every extracurricular activity, every sport, everything. I, they have to be there for every practice. Because the coach said, if they're not there for every practice, he's going to have to keep them on the bench. Or he's going to have to uh, not let them be on the team. Therefore, we'll have to miss church again. We'll have to miss that church thing. We'll have to not participate in what our family is doing. We'll have to miss the family reunion. We'll have to skip that family thing that we are planning on going to because I have to be a good parent. Now, did something get elevated to a place that it did not belong? Absolutely. Now, you may not agree with what I'm talking about, and that's okay. It's okay for you to be wrong. That's all right. That's why I'm here. How about this? I have to be happy. That's one of our American values. That's, the, that's, that's our primary American value is happiness. That's what we value above everything else. I have to be happy. I have to. Therefore, I have to buy this. I have to go there. I have to do this. I have to spend that. Or maybe me even more dark. My spouse isn't making me happy. Therefore, I have to leave. I have to look elsewhere. I have to. And these things that are not have-tos begin to get elevated above, above what we should do and what is good. good. Good things, going to practice with your kids, uh, good things, providing your family, good things, working hard, those are all good things. But when they get elevated above the best things, they're no longer good things. And this is so valuable because this is, this is where the rubber meets the road for church, right? We can, we can preach. Jordan and I can get up here and we can preach and we can talk about what's important. We can talk about what matters and we can talk about what you should and shouldn't do. But unless this stuff sinks into your lives, then what's the point? What's the point, right? Unless valuing Christ sinks into our lives and it actually takes the place of other things that are demanding our attention, then what's the point? Unless making Christ a central part of our lives and it actually keeps us from doing things that would diminish Christ in our lives, then what's the point? Unless this actually makes a difference, unless this actually makes an impact, then what's the point? Right? I mean, it's fun to come to church and see people and talk about things that are important, but unless these are going to make some difference in our heart, then what's the point? If we start elevating have-tos above what we need to do, what we should do, then we're going to find ourselves in trouble. We can even do this with our faith. Did you know that? I have to be a good Christian. God wants me to be a good Christian. Yeah, of course, of course. Therefore, I have to. And then we insert something that isn't bad, but isn't central 
to our faith. Doesn't focus us on Christ. And then we say, well, I have to tell other people to stop doing that thing that I found important or valuable, or I have to show them how wrong they are, or I have to leave this church and find a church that agrees with me. I've talked to so many people who, who thought they were having a struggle with their faith, and they were actually having a struggle with someone's well-intentioned opinion masquerading as the truth. That's what they were having trouble with. And they're like, I just can't accept that. And you're, well, accept what? And then they give me this thing. That's not, the Bible doesn't say that. Somebody, somebody elevated a have to into a place that it didn't belong. And here's, here's the bottom line. When life threatens to pull us away from the things that are truly important, we have to be brutally honest about what really is a have to. What is really a have to when we're struggling with those choices between good and better? That's why it's so dangerous to elevate good to best. But Mary, or excuse me, Martha goes on. She's, she's all worked up about this, and you can imagine, right? She's just, she's just bothered by this. And in verse 40, the second half of verse 40, she came to Jesus. Now, this is interesting to me, because you can kind of imagine this scenario, right? Like, Jesus is in the living room. He's got a crowd of people. He's talking. He's telling them, like, you've got to love your enemies. You've got to pray for those who persecute you. He's telling them all this stuff that Jesus would tell them. He's going for it. And Martha is wherever in another room, and she's just getting angrier and angrier as, at this situation because she's looking at Mary in there sitting at the feet of Jesus, which, by the way, is not something women commonly did in the first century. That was an unusual thing. And for Jesus to allow a woman to sit and listen to his teaching, that was a strange thing. So I imagine Martha wasn't just upset at Mary. She was probably also a little upset at Jesus. This is not protocol. This is not socially okay. This is not appropriate. And Mary not only is ignoring her responsibilities in here, she's just using that as an excuse. She's just sitting around. She's being lazy. And you can just imagine Martha getting more and more and more wound up and getting more excited and more frustrated, more, you know, energetic or whatever, until she just can't hold it back anymore. And she bursts into this room where Jesus is teaching. And Jesus, I don't know, he's probably speaking quietly and he's probably saying something. Seek first the kingdom of God. Sorry, keep sitting on this thing. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. You know, and he's sitting there, and people are like, whoa, this is good stuff. And Martha comes bursting into the room. She comes flying into the room. She's like, Lord. Now, listen, Martha is yelling at Jesus. That's pretty wild, right? Now, I'm interpreting this a little bit, right? But that's pretty wild. She's gotten herself so worked up. Lord, don't you care? I have to do all this work by myself. I'm trying to be a good host. That is what society tells me we got to do. You're our guest of honor. You're teaching here. If you want to teach something, why don't you teach Mary to get off her little hind end and come back in here and help me? That's what you should do. Now imagine that. So Jesus is teaching, right? He's sitting there and he's like, you know, seek first the king. Martha bursts in and you can just imagine the whole room is like, mm. like if it was strange and abnormal for a woman to sit at the feet of a, a foot of a rabbi and listen to his teaching, if that was abnormal, it was also abnormal for a woman to run in a room yelling at everybody. That was also abnormal. So you can imagine Jesus is sitting there and she comes in. She's just frustrated and angry. And this is a good thing. Like what she's wanting Mary to do is not a bad thing. She wants Mary to share the burden of responsibility. This is Martha's house, by the way. Mary is just living there. And if she needs to pitch in once in a while, right? I mean, come on, Mary. You can't just lounge around all the time. There are things that have to be done. And if these things don't get done, then who's going to take care of them? You? No, you're just sitting around. And you just imagine she's worked up. Now, she, he comes in and you can just... 
sense like the tension in the room, right? Have you ever been in a situation like that where someone's all worked up and they're yelling and you're like, oof. I can just imagine every, every uh, head in the room kind of looks at the ground, you know, like they don't want to make eye contact with anybody. Peter probably glances over at Thaddeus and is like, awkward. Uh, this is, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. She's gotten so worked up. And I don't blame Mar- Martha, by the way. I don't. I think Martha's great. I think more people should be busy doing work, right? I, I think that's great. But she's gotten so worked up about what's most valuable in a situation that it's just taken over. It's just taken over. And Jesus doesn't agree. Jesus doesn't agree about what's most important. And, and here's the thing. When we forget what is, what is best and we focus on what is good, what is good tends to edge out what is best. Now, uh, you parents who have helped your kids with homework, your child comes down 11 o'clock at night, and they say, Dad, Mom, I forgot. I have to have a diorama of the Battle of Gettysburg done at eight, by 8 o'clock in the morning. And you're like, uh, well, sorry, you're just not going to get it done. But, you know, you're trying to be a good parent, and you need them to get that A in that second grade class, or they're not going to go to Harvard, right? you got to get this. And so you're like, okay, well, come on. You find some old cardboard and some old, you know, sticks and marshmallows, and you're starting to put it together. And, and pretty soon, you know, your, your kid who is too slow, they're, sorry, i got to fix that. Your kid, I'll just put it right here. Well, your kid who's just not doing it quite right to get done so you can get them back to bed, you're like, okay, scoot over, I will get this. And you're just getting the soldiers just right and the guns. And pretty soon, your kid's over there on the iPad watching Netflix, and you're doing their homework, <laughs> Right? Have you, ever, have you ever been that person? You're sitting there, you're like, wait a second here. What is going on? And your kid's over there like Tom Sawyer, like, okay, mom, show me how to build one more little thing over there. You just, you just do that, and mom, you know, wait a second. And then you, have you ever done this where you go to school the next morning and you take your, like, project in, you're helping your kid carry the project in, and some of those second graders have projects that are so professional looking, you're like, I don't know that either your second grader is just a child prodigy or dad stayed up till like, 3 a.m. finishing that thing for you. Like, like you've, you've edged out the thing that was supposed to happen. The value of this kid doing this project, that's been edged out because you're, you know, this other value. And I think this happens in our faith too. The value of Jesus gets, gets edged out by other things in our lives. Focusing on what's more, more, most important gets edged out because we're doing something that is good, but it's not most important. Listen to what Martha was telling Jesus. Martha was saying, hey, Jesus, tell Mary to stop learning from you and come back in here and help me. That's what Martha was saying. And Jesus, he warned this again and again. And I think I would argue that it's easier to be pulled from what is most important by good things. Like, like we're not talking about the difference between robbing banks and helping orphans, right? That's not the moral dilemma we're talking about. We're talking about like focusing on Christ and just focusing on all this stuff in our lives that it's, it's good, but it's not most important. And so over and over again in scripture, Jesus warned about that. Warned about how difficult it would be to focus on the most important things. There's a few verses I'm just going to rattle off. Luke 9, 59. A guy says, hey Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Let me go bury my father. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's a fair request. Your dad's important. Go bury him. Have the funeral. Mourn. And then you can come follow me. And what does Jesus say? No. Let the dead bury their own dead. That's pretty callous, Jesus. And, And does he really 
get upset if we try to take care of our family and make funeral arrangements? No, that's not the point. The point is, if something good comes in the way of something best, that's not good anymore. If something good comes in the way of something best, it's not good anymore. In Luke 9, 61, the very next part, this is just a, a chapter earlier from the Mary and Martha story, by the way, where it says, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. That seems fair, right? You don't want to do the, uh, the old, like, you get out of there and all of a sudden, where did they go? They're, you know, endangered, missing person. You know, they, I, let me say goodbye to my family. It's a good thing. And Jesus says, no, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. You're like, wow, come on. Good things, if they get in the way of best things, are wrong things. And that's such a hard lesson for us to remember. I think good things are more difficult to, to, to worry about because good things don't, for, for three primary reasons that I can think of, maybe you could come up with more. But good things don't trigger our consciences. Good things. Like, like if somebody says, oh, I'd love to help out with that very important thing, or I'd love to focus on that, and then they say, but I can't because I got this good thing, fill in the blank. It just doesn't trigger our consciences as much. We don't, we don't pay attention quite as much if we're neglecting the best for the good. It just doesn't register as much. I think good things are much easier to justify. Like, you, you've had conversations with people who were just straining the very edges of logic and reason to justify this terrible decision that everybody in the world could see was a terrible decision, and they're just doing, like, reason-logic backflips to try to tell you how this was okay. But if it's a good thing, it's easy to justify. It's easy. No problem. It's a good thing. Good things keep people off your back. People don't come up to you and call you out for doing good things, even when they're not the best things. When I'm putting my kids to bed, they know they will get a lot more mileage out of telling me, hey, Dad, I need a drink of water, or I need to go to the bathroom, or whatever, or I need to brush my teeth, than if they say, hey, Dad, I just want to stay up. I don't want to be asleep right now. They'll get more mileage out of that. So they will use that to try to stay up, because how am I going to argue with that? You want water and you have to go to the bathroom? Are you dehydrated or overhydrated? I can't tell. Come on, make up your mind. But, but if we're saying, I can't do the best thing for this good thing, pe- people don't call us into account for that. It's a good thing. But if a good thing keeps you from the best thing, it's the wrong thing. It's the wrong thing. Verse 41. This is Jesus' response to this. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered. And I know he wasn't being patronizing. I just, every time I read that, I'm like, man, Mar- that m- if I, <laughs> if my wife was upset at, at me and she came bursting into the room and I was like, oh, Corrine, Corrine, just, you know, <laughs> whatever like level of frustration or anger she would have at me would just be like way cranked up. Not because she's a bad person, but because that sounds pretty condescending, right? And I, I know Jesus said it in the most loving, kind, gracious way possible. I know it's not. I know it's not condescending. But it, you know, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. He goes, you're worried and you're upset about many things. We could probably insert in there many good things. There's a lot of good things. Hosting a group of guests, hosting this and taking care of us. That's a good thing. You're worried and upset about many good things. But this is what he says. But few things are needed. And then he like almost recalibrates himself. Actually, not just few, only one. Not just few. There's not a bunch of things that rise to this level of best. There's only, there's only one. And Mary has chosen what is better. And I'm not going to take that away from her. I, I don't know how Martha would have responded. The text doesn't tell us. They remained friends, so I guess she took it pretty well. But he was saying, Martha, you have too many things in your have-to category. 
There's too many things that have been elevated to a position that they don't belong. There's too many things. And you need to clean out that have-to category. And you need to put one thing in there. Just one. One thing. And, and, And here's the deal. Jesus is our organizing principle for life. That's it. I, I don't want to be too distracting, but um, gluten-free is kind of a big thing right now, right? That's a, that's a big thing. And there's people who are actually gluten intolerant. And there's a lot of people who are like, I just don't like, I like having a weird thing that makes people have to cook weird food for me or whatever. You know, that's, if you're gluten-free in here, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, but like, but it, it's a big thing, right? In, in every product, like, you know, they're slapping gluten-free on everything, and it's a big thing, right? And, 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 and for a lot of people who are gluten-free, nobody in this room, other people, other people who are gluten-free, that's like the organizing principle of their lives, right? They, they come to a meal, like, is this gluten-free? Uh, are, are these shoes gluten-free? These shoes are gluten-free, right? You know, I don't know if I can drive, I don't know if that restaurant's gluten-free. They might have, somebody might be using bags of gluten in the back room, and I, you know, whatever. I don't, gluten... By the way, there's an old joke, uh, and I'm so sorry <laughs> for those of you that are actually gluten-free. Uh, there's an old joke that, uh, that says, how do you tell if someone's gluten-free? Don't worry, they'll tell you, right? <laughs> right? But that's, those things are, are like an organizing principle for, for everything that somebody does. If somebody's a vegetarian, that's the organizing principle. If somebody like values this thing, that's like, does this affect you? If somebody cares about, you know, the environment, if somebody cares about animal product testing, like those are the things that they measure and gauge everything by. Those are the things that are kind of most important to them. And here's the thing, for us, for Christians, it's none of those things. There's one, one thing that is important. There's one organizing principle for us. And you know what that is? That's Jesus. Does this decision bring me closer to or further from Jesus? That is it. That is how simple your life could be. Did you know that? That's how simple it could be. Does this decision bring me closer to or further from Jesus? Even if it is a good thing, if it brings me further from or distracts me more from Jesus, it is the wrong thing. That's the bottom line. Does this bring me closer to or further from Jesus? That is is our organizing principle. And this is not rocket science, but if you start with Jesus, you find that all those good things kind of get worked out on their own. If you start with other things, you find that Jesus gets left out. That's the problem. He just kind of gets edged out into the background of our busy lives. So I just have one question for you as we wrap up this morning. This, this is the only question I want to challenge you with this morning. What keeps Jesus most central in my life and the lives of those for whom I'm responsible. What is it? And if you're pursuing things that are good, but you've elevated them to the best, they're not good. If you're doing things that are not wrong, but they're pulling you from Jesus, they're wrong. If you're doing things that are fine, and other people are like, well, that's fine, I guess he seems like he's doing okay, but they're not bringing you closer to Christ, they're not good. That's how we know the difference between good and better. Does it draw us and the people for whom we are responsible closer to Christ? Your kids, your spouse, the people that you intend to influence in your workplace, in your schools, does it draw them closer to Christ? That is, listen, that is the one thing. That makes our lives quite a bit more simple, doesn't it? The one thing that we got to worry about. So this holiday season... If you're worried about who to buy what for, how much to spend, how much you decorate, where do you go, all those things are fine. But if those things are getting in the way of the one thing, they're not that important. They're not have-tos. They're not have-tos. They're not the most important thing. 
We're going to wrap up this morning, and I'm going to ask uh, Leon to come up and uh, close this out in a word of prayer. Leon's one of our elders. Um, but my challenge for you, I, I, w- I say this week usually, but my challenge for you for life is to really reclaim the centrality of Christ as the most important thing, the guiding principle, the thing by which you judge and measure everything else in your life. And that's how we figure out the difference between good and better. Leon?